Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Steve Jobs often spoke of the lightness of being a beginner as opposed to the heaviness of being successful. Well, his creation, Apple Incorporated, is beginning to encounter the heaviness of success in a very real regulatory way with several court cases and competition investigations around the world. To help me understand what those fights are about and why they are vital to not just Apple, but other giants, as well as the lives and livelihoods of billions of people around the world, I have two wonderfully knowledgeable nerds with me. Brooke Masters is an American based in London who spent more than a decade covering regulation and white-collar crime and has also served as the Financial Times Company's editor and opinion editor. She's currently chief business commentator at the FT. Welcome to the podcast, Brooke. Hi, thanks for having me. My second guest, Tim Kelly, has been a journalist in Japan for over 20 years, covering politics, the economy and business at outlets including Bloomberg News and Forbes magazine. He's currently at Reuters, where he writes about Japan's tech sector, automakers and national security. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Hi. Hello. Brooke, if I can start with you, can we just talk about some really basic principles of why we have competition laws, why there are uh, uh there's legislation preventing what is known as the abuse of a dominant position fundamentally the the principle which largely dates back in terms of legal form to the US in the uh 19th century is that no very large company should dominate a sector and there are a couple reasons why the main one is that it leads to higher prices for consumers and hurts innovation because other competitors can't improve the product or come up with their own ideas measuring whether something is abusive tends to focus on how much is charged and how much money is made but sometimes there are also focuses on whether other companies can enter the sector and compete Yeah, the terms, the whether it's raising barriers to entry and all of that. And that in some ways branches away also to the second big area of regulation, which is sort of cartel behavior. Because if companies are getting together and agreeing stuff, they are effectively acting as one entity. So they're almost two faces of the same coin, aren't they? I used to work in this, uh, in this area. And in my experience, most abuse cases center around arguments of what the market actually is. Because if you make the market as wide as possible, it's very difficult to show that the company is dominant in it. If you make the market quite narrow, so if you say, you know, consumers don't have realistic alternatives, then you can show a company is dominant in quite a narrow market. Is that a fair reflection of the position, Brooke? Absolutely. The problem is if you make the market quite narrow, then the number of competitors who are helped by any decision will be very small as well, yes. which is why there's always a debate. The, one of the famous cases is when two very schnazzy gourmet grocery store chains merged in the U.S., And the FTC opted to define the market as the entire supermarket universe, which meant it, it was not a problem because between them, they only controlled under 5% of all grocery stores. If they defined it differently and said, you know, upscale grocery stores in urban areas, between the two, these two controlled you know, huge swaths of the market. And then the very last concept that we, we should mention, because it applies to technology, is that 
there are effectively state-sanctioned periods of abusing your monopoly or monopsony, in a sense, which is why we have patents. They are a a state-sanctioned way of saying, you've invested loads of money in creating this product, and we will give you a period in which you can be the only person doing this product. Correct. And that's particularly important in things like drug development, where the pharmaceutical companies rely on that period to make a bunch of money before the generics come in and make copies of their product. Again, it's abusive if it lasts too long or if it prevents or if it's too broad. And there's been loads of cases about companies trying various ways to extend that um, position. Now, Tim, if we can come to you, having established the very, very basic principles in this, there was a case that the Japanese regulator um, has just closed against Apple. It has basically settled the case because Apple made quite a significant concession. So what was the case about and how was it settled? Uh, so the case, the, the investigation itself actually began in uh, 2016. Uh, so it's it's already five years um, that the investi- investigation was going on. Well, when I say an investigation, it was more that the Japan Fair Trade Commission was holding hearings uh, with both with apps uh, and also with uh, Apple as well. Um, its scope was quite limited. So it was specifically concerned with reader apps and that would include things like streaming services like Spotify, Netflix and the focus rather than on those big kind of users like Spotify was more on smaller apps and the argument was that if these smaller apps are paying royalty fees as part of their business it can take up to 70% of their revenue and the remaining 30% would have been paid to Apple through its payments on the iPhone and therefore, they were left with no profit. So the scope of it was very, very limited to that reader apps. And it, it didn't look at the games, which is a much bigger part of, of the app store on the Apple. Mm-hmm. Before the government announced, before the Fair Trade Commission announced uh, the result of this, essentially saying it was going to step down any investigation because Apple had made concessions. Apple made its own announcement before this kind of to get ahead of the the curve on the news, I guess, to, to spin it in, in the way that they wanted to, to talk about it. So it wasn't clear to begin with why Apple was doing this. But, you know, when the Japanese Fair Trade Commission made their announcement, you know, it was clear that the scope was very limited. And one important point of this is that the Japanese regulators did not rule out the possibility of further investigations mm. to Apple's App Store uh, that would look at gaming as well. Uh, so, this is not over in Japan, potentially. There could be further investigations uh, in the future. And, you know, the regulators here could make further demands on uh, Apple to make changes to the way it does business. So the crux of it, as I understand it, is that let's say you download the Netflix app on your iPhone or your iPad or your uh, Apple TV. You can log on and stream content if you already have a Netflix membership, but nowhere was it possible to sign up for Netflix membership or to even see that Netflix was a service that offered membership. Is that right? Yeah, the the issue was what Apple agreed to do because of the, the Japanese regulators' investigation is was to allow the reader apps to uh, include a link in their app to their website that would allow users then to go to the website of, if it were Netflix or Spotify, and make payments there. These are not in-app purchases. These are links to 
the inside. So that, that was the concession that, that Apple made specifically for the reader apps. I saw some submissions that suggested that the reason these links weren't including was that Apple was trying to muscle developers into doing their sign up through um, sort of in-app purchases from which Correct, then Apple yes. would, would yep. take a cut. Yes. So it's essentially, it's a business for Apple. So that by users signing up through the app store, then uh, Apple's taken a cut. You know, it was, I mean, even uh, last month too, um, before the Japanese ruling, there was a agreement in the US uh, by Apple. They agreed to allow apps to send emails to users um, to notify them that they could sign up on their sites rather than through the app. There's been a series of concessions, I guess, from Apple over the past few weeks. All about keeping control of the relationship with the customer effectively. Now, um, Brooke, that was only about what's called reader apps, but there has been an even more recent development in a, in a case of a games developer called Epic against Apple that expanded that general principle to games. Correct. Uh, Epic had filed suit against both Apple and Google in different lawsuits. Epic makes Fortnite, which is that wildly successful game. And it, it uses lots and lots of in-app purchases. So for Epic, this is really crucial. It's, you know, 30% of their revenue was going to Apple. And so they deliberately picked a fight with Apple by putting something into their games, which sent you outside of the app store to buy all your, you know, skins, which is the costumes your character wears and, and things like that. And mm-hmm. Apple then banned them from the app store. The lawsuit went to court, and this is in the U.S. in federal court, and Epic made a wide range of claims, everything from the App Store itself is a monopoly and must be broken up, um, to, you know, the fact that you can't do in-app purchases outside of this particular mechanism within the App Store is illegal. And so they had something like 10 or 15 claims. After a long trial in which uh, lots of interesting details came out about just how much Apple makes from the App Store, and it's something they make something like you know seventy percent profit off uh, off their App Store uh, spending. You know, it, it's a, it's an enormous center for them. The judge ruled recently that, in fact, it's not a monopoly. Apple does have the right to charge you know a fee for use of the App Store. And she, uh, in fact, even told Epic that they had to pay commission on things that were sold through the App Store. But crucially, she found in one area for Epic, and and that is why what we're, is happening, that basically for all apps, and this includes games, which are something like 80% of the revenue in the App Store, she said that there has to be an option for the developer or, or to tell a player or a user that there is another option that you can leave. She referred to it like a button that you could push and that that must be available. And she found that as a matter of California law, but she said because the internet is the internet, it should apply nat- nationwide. It's not a global ruling, but Apple generally has a principle that whatever it does applies globally. So when, for example, it made concessions to Japan, it applied them globally. So it will be interesting to see in this case whether when it makes the concessions that the judge wants, whether it will apply those globally. If so, that's a really big deal because the the streaming revenue from the App Store is a big part of Apple's profits because it's low cost and high revenue. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and it will have a big effect for, for companies like Epic that at the moment do have to give up 30% of their revenue to it. It is not the big victory that Epic was hoping for, where, you know, they declared Apple is evil and, and must be broken up, you know, sort of like standard oil in the 1900s. The judge specifically did not do that. She did, however, warn way in the opinion, somewhere around 150 pages in, that Apple has a really big share. And that if, if, if others looked at this, they, and if the share continued to grow, it might be worth uh, reconsidering whether they are becoming a monopoly. And so that also is a warning. Uh, and it should be noted also that the judge defined the market in a way that neither Apple nor Epic wanted. You know, Epic mm-hmm. wanted all App Store. Apple wanted all games everywhere, you know, including things that you buy on your PlayStation. Um, and instead she said, no, this is the, the market I'm going to look at is, is the payments for games. So hmm. only payments and only games, you know, not how you play games, but how you pay for things in them. I was reading the summary of the Epic case and, and the thing that popped straight into my head as a former regulator was how similar the model was to food delivery services in which there has been lots of consolidation and which also deliver a thing as an intermediary and take a big cut and promote certain restaurants as opposed to other ones and ban certain restaurants if they don't abide by their their rules. I'm sure we will see a case in that area very, very soon. Can I just mention that actually there's a case coming. New York City has passed a cap on delivery fees and the um, delivery companies, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats that are, are suing to try and stop that. So it's a slightly different thing in that the government's trying to control them. But that's, um, that's fascinating. There's a fight. Yeah. Um, New York is often on the vanguard of these things with rent control, etc. Now, Tim, the, the, uh, the legal landscape expands even further if you look at the case the Indian regulator is uh, taking against Apple, which is all about it basically extracting too much profit from its well, we can't say it's a dominant position because that's a matter still to be determined by the law of that jurisdiction. But let's say it's deriving more profit than it should from its very strong position in that market. Yeah, the, I think, you know, the Indian case uh, and also actually South Korea is an interesting uh, case as well. They show that Apple is fighting on multiple fronts to protect what it sees as its rifle business. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the India case, but just at the end of uh, August, South Korea passed legislation and it, it actually banned Apple from forcing app users to do the in-app payments through its app store. That's probably gone farther than any other jurisdiction in terms of how they're treating Apple. You know, So potentially that's a sign of what may come down the line for Apple. I mean, things are playing out in the courts, but increasingly things may play out in the legis- legislature as, as well. There could be legislation coming down the line in several jurisdictions that may kind of put limits on Apple and not just Apple, of course. I mean, there's Google, there's Google as well with its, its Android um, app store as well. Mm. And for, I mean, because effectively the app purchasing arms of these companies operate like marketplaces. So you could see it expanding further to other companies that effectively offer these marketplace. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, yes. Yeah. A lot of the antitrust legislation that is in place was never created with uh, digital markets in mind. Um, You know, as technology has moved on, the law 
hasn't moved on as fast. So, you know, once uh, I think, you know, regulators are given more powers through legislation, it could well be that it's going to be tougher for the likes of Apple and other major digital companies to uh, operate in the way that they do now. Are there any cases closer to home? Is the EU or the UK making any noises or starting any investigations in this area? Well, the, the EU certainly has, has not shied away from uh, investigating the likes of Apple. There was actually a case was pushed by Spotify from Sweden uh, early in the year. And again, this was on this issue of allowing apps to put links in their apps to their websites for payments. So yes, uh, I think the EU will pursue cases in the future, is pursuing cases. And I think, you know, as Brooke said, you know, once uh, one major jurisdiction makes a ruling against Apple and other companies, that sets a precedent and forces those companies to change their operations globally rather than just specifically for one market. Brooke, are there structural solutions available to Apple to fend off future challenges like that? Would would breaking it up, for instance, into national uh, you know, entities that operate only nationally or breaking it up in some other way, sort of b- breaking off the app purchasing arm of it into a completely separate company. Would any of that work? I think breaking it up nationally is not going to help at all because these are all in general national or regional regulators. And so they don't, they don't really care what's happening in Japan. They care what happens, you know, in their jurisdiction. Apple could have different rules for different app stores. Um, you know, that certainly can happen. I'm always struck, you know, Amazon, for example, if you go onto amazon.com, different things are for sale than are at amazon.co.uk. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's absolutely possible. And, and Apple could do that. Their view of their lives, of their offering as a walled garden where they control everything, I think tends to make them want to do everything globally because it helps them seem like a special place. And that is a large part of their selling point that, you know, if you're in the Apple universe, you're in the Apple universe. Otherwise, they obviously would fight tooth and nail against anything that would force them to split off the App Store from other things. I mean, they contend that their control of the App Store is part of this walled garden, this special curated universe where there is more protection and and there's a sort of sense of who belongs. And in fact, in the U.S., the judge absolutely bought that. She said, you know, there is clearly a value in being within the Apple universe. You get Apple things and, and, you know, they do, although they don't spend an enormous amount of time, they do check the apps that are there and all of mm. that. And I think Apple would absolutely fight very hard to keep that particularly. It's, it's part of what they offer. Uh, it's one of the ways they differentiate, frankly, from the Android universe where there are lots of different phone makers who offer lots of different things. Is there also a sense, just reading between the lines, that there is a business strategy at work here that Apple basically goes into the market with these things with maximum control in order to make the maximum profit for as long as possible, knowing that it's not sustainable, that bits of it will be stripped away bit by bit. But in the meantime, it's making a lot of money. I think they would argue that they don't expect it to be stripped away. They do expect competitors and imitators. So I don't think they're necessarily would ever concede that anything they're doing is illegal and will be taken from them. But they absolutely do go in and they pioneer and they expect others to follow. And the way 
they continue to make money is partly through this shift to streaming that they can offer new services all the time. They just mm. unveiled a new set of iPhones, which are nice, but I don't think they're, you know, world-beating changes. They have somewhat better cameras than the last set of iPhones and somewhat better batteries. Yes. Their big focus is to build onto that universe that they have all these, you know, locked-in customers who love Apple, and they can sell them all sorts of other things. And and so their their business model is really to keep people in the Apple universe and find new ways to sell them stuff. Tim, was reaching such a huge size always going to bring regulation challenges? Is Apple in a real way a victim of its own success here? I guess, you know, if you're going to be the biggest player in in your industry, you're, you are always going to be the target of uh, dissatisfied customers or dissatisfied clients. I mean, inevitably, you know, the lawsuits will happen. Big companies, if they're seen as monopolies, are going to be the target of possible legislation so yes i mean i think that's just inevitable uh, in companies and you know i mean perhaps you know we are seeing as, as brooke mentioned uh, the kind of antitrust actions that were taken at the beginning of the 20th century you know maybe perhaps now is is kind of has certain similarities to that perhaps i mean it's difficult to predict what the future is going to be and uh, for these big companies you know they will always try to innovate uh, and to bring new products and they will always kind of um, fight to maintain those markets uh, and maintain their profits. You know, companies, that's what they do. They're, they're there to make money for their owners. And they will do it uh, in a legal way until someone else, someone comes along and says, well, uh, you can't. Or new, new laws come along that make what they've done in the past um, no longer legal. Yes. Look, mum, no invisible hands. Can I ask a final question to both of you? that is slightly broader. Is national competition law effective in, you know, 2021 against such multinational giants? Or do we need international antitrust law? Are we getting to the state where we need an international competition authority that can look at these things in a, in a global way? I have to say, I've covered international banking regulation, which is one of those places where they did decide they needed to at least have coordination. And it's it's amazingly slow, and it has to be <laughs> consensus-driven. I personally think tough watchdogs in big markets can accomplish a great deal, and I almost prefer them. It would be nice to have some global coordination where people share ideas and share their concerns and share solutions. So if you know Japan's way of ordering Apple to change its uh, treatment of reader apps is a good one. It'd be great if, you know, Iceland can copy it. But mm. frankly, you know, having a, a tough U.S. watchdog and an aggressive EU watchdog is probably better than hoping for some big international solution, in my mind. Mm. So there's a level at which it becomes sort of optimal, as it were, and a level above which it becomes a little bit too slow moving. Is there a danger that we will get into a, a, a situation like big tobacco where we will be penalizing developing countries that don't have as advanced a, a regulatory regime. Because, you know, if you make me abide by X regulations in, in the States, I will just sell my product to Africa and Latin America. I suppose that could happen, but I, I can't see that the, the U.S. regulators who have the financial where and legal wherewithal to go after this are going to really care very much about the Latin America anyway. 
I would be surprised if a international regulator had the kind of teeth that you wanted. I mean, if you just look at what the OECD tries to do on tax avoidance or what uh, FAFSA tries to do on stopping people from doing money laundering, it, it just takes decades. <laughs> uh, Tim, do you agree with that? Is it enough for the, the sort of the big, big markets to regulate effectively? Does that force companies to get into line? I think I, I would tend to agree with Brooke. There are instances where companies cooperate, for example, in global standards, you know, things like everyone uses the same shipping containers and, you know, cell phone standards. And in the evolving market of electrical vehicles, you know, there's there's moves for standardization on, on how you charge those vehicles in terms of the, the sockets and the, the shape of those. Mm. So, you know, international cooperation does work when you want to regulate bigger markets. But I think having an international body that would be global antitrust policemen would be very difficult to manage. And you'd have to get lots of dozens and dozens of countries to agree on that. And I think it would be very unwieldy. So I, I think, as you know, as Brooke said, if you have these big jurisdictions like the EU, like the US, bigger markets like Japan, and they make rulings, they bring in legislation that sets kind of precedence or gives you know, models that other con- other countries can copy. I think probably that makes makes the most sense in, in terms of going forward. Brooke Masters of the FT, Tim Kelly from Reuters, thank you so much for your time and for making this very complex issue accessible. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Listeners, remember, there's some new podcasts from either The Bunker or The Oh God Family pretty much every day. You can support us financially on the funding platform Patreon. You can also help us in a very simple way that costs you nothing. Subscribe, review and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Every time you do that, our voice is amplified and promoted to new listeners. So take a few seconds to do it now. If companies were ranked in terms of nominal GDP along countries, Apple would be the world's eighth largest economy and on current trend may overtake France and the UK in the next few years, making it sixth. Saudi Aramco would be 10th, Amazon 12th, Microsoft 15th and Alphabet, owners of Google, 17th. When companies become superpowers, is it time to start treating them more directly like pieces on the geopolitical chessboard? rather than business concerns with only a business agenda. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.